Let's go through every single package installed with a Linux install image. I'm going through the software included with Slackware, but these are all open source applications and libraries, so whether you're running Slackware like me, or Fedora, Debian, BSD, or even Mac or Windows, you can probably download, install, and try these on your computer. So chances are, you'll be able to learn something from this podcast. Let's get started. In a previous episode, I said that I didn't think I was going to really be able to say much about the libraries included in Slackware. It's the L software series. And, I mean, they're libraries. They're software libraries. You you use them when you're programming, and, and you usually use them for a relatively specific, uh, well, not literally function, but, but a specific function. For instance, you need to parse um, raw photo data, f- photos taken in the raw format. You would use libraw, and, and there's not a whole lot to say about that unless, unless I were to go through, like, the specific functions of the library, which doesn't sound all that interesting, uh, at least not, not in context of, of what you're doing. I have been surprised so far, actually. The L section has been more interesting and more interactive, if you will, than I had anticipated. So I I might have some things to say about some libraries, is the point. I mean, some of them actually even have, in the package shipped with Slackware, some of them even have uh, things in the bin folder, user bin, like commands you can run. So so some of them are, are... you know, they're, they're more than just a library, I guess. I haven't gone through all of them, so the, the story could change as we get into sort of the, just the depths of presumably, I don't know, f- f- 20, 30, 50, lib this, lib that. Like, that might be the breaking point. I might just have to, just to announce, yes, there's a bunch of libraries. Moving on. Who knows? But for this episode, um, yeah, there's actually stuff to talk about. But but before I do that, I'm gonna just kind of reiterate. This is um, the, the the way that I've been doing this is you know, previously I was just going to the software list of Slackware 14.2, and now that we're on 15.0, I'm just going through the. I just went right into 15.0. No no, you know. So I've I've probably missed some things out of 14.2 or out of 15.0 that wasn't in 14.2. That's fine, but we're getting close enough. If you want to, like, try to travel along, there are two ways to do that in Slackware. You can go to some site like FTP dot, and that's not, like, FTP colon slash slash, it's just, it's the name of the, 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 um, the domain. FTP dot OSUOSL dot org slash pub slash Slackware slash Slackware 64 dash 15.0 slash slackware64 slash l. So in other words, you go to a place where where slackware is distributed. So a, a, a slackware mirror. And, you know, there are different servers around the country, around the world, what am I talking about, um, that have that have mirrors uh, that host a lot of open source projects, and, and some of them also host slackware. They just mirror exactly what's on, on slackware's main server and, and and copy it to their own server uh, on a daily basis or whatever, and um, and that way you can get the content from uh, n- not just one server. This is an old way of of doing what essentially, I guess, in a way we think of as a cloud capability today. Like one of the big advantages of 
a cloud is that when one person wants a resource, there's one server out there and they can get that resource from that one server. And when a hundred people want a resource, they can probably all live off of that one server as well. But you start getting a thousand or ten thousand or a hundred thousand people who want something and suddenly one server is just not going to be able to handle all the traffic. And so you divide the the load, you you balance that server load across, say, two servers. Suddenly you're you're good again. Everyone all, all the traffic can be handled more or less. You add more people to it, yeah, you make up maybe a third a fourth, a fifth, a twentieth server. That's that's what the mirroring system provides within open source. It's very, very similar uh, now with with the cloud, except instead of making, instead of like copying files from one server to another, you simply spin up a virtual server, a little pod, within a big network of lots of computers that are always on and have lots and lots of little pods running various services for them. People go to the array, the the cloud, the big mesh, the big you know network of nodes, and when they want a service, then their traffic can be routed by this huge megalith into uh, the pod that that is appropriate for the service that they're looking for. If suddenly a hundred thousand people want that service, you can just spin up ten pods or twenty pods or a hundred pods and direct traffic accordingly with a with a, something to control that traffic and ingest controller traffic. Uh, something like that. So that is what this mirror network does. It just makes sure that a lot of people can get this resource no matter where they are on the physically on the globe and no matter how many people want it at any given time. So go to your Slackware mirror. If you don't know where there are Slackware mirrors, you can do a most slash etsy slash slack pkg slash mirrors. That shows you all of the mirrors all around the world. There's uh, some in Australia. You just keep scrolling down and then you'll see that there are some in uh, Austria and Belarus and Brazil and Bulgaria and Canada and so on. And so th- there's just a big, big old list of, of servers there. You, you copy and paste one into your browser and then you, you navigate to Slackware, Slackware 64-15.0, Slackware 64, and then you've got all the lists or all the, the software series as they called it. Um, as, I, as I understand it, it was called the software series because it was literally a series of floppy disks a long time ago. Now they're just folders in a in a folder in a server. So I'm now, as of this episode, we're in the L directory and the first one because of capitalization and how things get sorted, is gconf-3.2.6. And looking at, I'm going to do it at most of slash var log packages slash gconf with a capital G and a capital C. That's important because gconf with a lowercase g and c is a different thing. So I'm on 3.2.6, yep, okay. Uh, and it says gconf is the GNOME configuration library. gconf is a configuration database system designed for the GNOME project and applications based on GTK+. It is conceptually similar to the Windows registry. So you might wonder why we would need gconf on Slackware if we don't even ship gconf um well that's because yeah or not gconf um gnome um and, that, and that's because the gconf isn't only 
used by literally like GNOME, the desktop. There are applications often written in GTK um, or GTK plus maybe, I don't know, um, that expect a database where they can save their settings. And that database is gconf. You might have reservations about gconf because you might think, well, why do we need a database, a registry? when we could just save the things that we want in plain text files on the system. And, I mean, I can't argue with you. I, I feel the same way. And I know that kind of goes into in, in conflict, maybe, of some other things that I've said about other databases or other binary stashes of data, which, I mean, that's a database, I guess. Um, although it doesn't have to be, right? So, um, anyway... I've I've said before, like, well, you know, it just seems like the binary format is just better for searching. It's it's faster. It's you know, you can you don't have to scrub through byte for byte looking for a specific string and then extracting the next string and so on. So I, I think I think there is an argument, a valid argument, for a binary store of data. I think if there wasn't that argument, I don't think we would see it. I really don't. I, I, I mean, maybe, no, we would. Sorry. We would see it. We would see it because a lot of people mistake um, making something difficult to access with keeping something safe slash secret slash proprietary, whatever. So people would use it because they would think, well, if we obfuscate the data, then no one will know what's going on. Forgetting, of course, that you're putting something on people's computers and giving them all the time in the world to sit there and reverse engineer it. So you are putting that arbitrary sort of annoying blockade between the thing that you are distributing and the ability for people to understand it, which is annoying. The other side of that, though, is that you're you're, you're providing, it's certainly in gconf's um, uh, case, that they're providing this data store on your computer and they're, they've documented it, and they've given you the tools to analyze it and look at it from lots of different angles and so on. So I think that there's probably a very good argument for, for gconf. I, I imagine that probably a lot of people are very appreciative that gconf exists. I'm not one of those people. I, I don't, I'm not a fan of gconf. I've used um, binary configuration options before and have not enjoyed using them at all. Um, that doesn't mean they're not any good. I'm just saying that's not what I prefer. Uh, a lot of the, well, as far as, as far as I can think of, uh, like, all of the configuration for KDE, I'm sure there's something that I'm forgetting, but all, all the configuration for KDE is pretty much in plain text files in in your home directory. So I, I don't know. I'm I'm just not that much of a fan. So I, I don't, and I even wonder whether it's really that necessary. Um, it, it might be, you know, who knows? Like, I don't know. But um, I don't know. I, I don't love it, but it exists. And there are tools to, to manipulate it, which I think is quite important. So in this package, there are um, some documentation files, there is there are some include files, and then there are some user bin uh, commands, so commands in user bin. gconf merge tree, gconf tool dash two, g settings data convert, and g settings schema convert. So I think instead of starting at the at the top, I'm going to 
um, start with gconf tool-2, which is a tool to manipulate a gconf configuration. And, and this is where it comes into play, where you, you have to learn the tool in order to sort of interact with the data. That's the barrier. That That's the n almost necessary barrier when something is stored in a binary format. Now you have to essentially decode it. And for you, that doesn't literally mean Oh, you have to figure out the, the cipher, but you do have to figure out the tool that knows the cipher. And the tool in this case is gconf tool-2. So if you want to see the settings of your gconf uh, registry, or whatever they call it, um, you can use gconf tool-2. And uh, you with this tool, you can set the values of keys. You can display the values of keys. You can install schemas from schema definition files. Um, while installing an application. The, the weird thing about this tool, gconf da, uh, tool-2, is that it, you're essentially exploring a file system, and it's not your file system. It's the it's the database. It's the gconf database. And, and so when you want to explore that, you have to learn the language. So it's just as if, though, someone had sat you down in front of a raw data dump of a WordPress site and said, hey, could you find the blog post I did yesterday? If you were sitting in front of WordPress, you could probably do that. I mean, if you've ever used WordPress or you had the time to click around. But but just the raw database, that's probably a different question. So how do you how do you navigate the the, the database? Well, you do, um, it, it's structured as if though it was a file system, just a lot, I guess, I want to say more minimal, but maybe, maybe that's not fair. It's got fewer top-level directories, let's put it that way, at least by default, I mean, on, on, on Slackware. It might be a lot more complex elsewhere, I don't know. gconf dash, uh, no, gconf tool dash two space dash dash all uh, a dash ders, as in directories, so dash dash all ders, um, space slash, just like a file system. You, you want to look at the, the root level, the, 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 the root or the top, uh, of the directory tree. So, say that, and it shows you, it returns slash system and slash desktop. So I'm going to favor desktop because I, I happen to know I have some entries there. So, gconf, tool dash two space dash dash all dash ders space slash desktop. So we're looking in the quote unquote desktop folder. Okay, well, in this desktop folder, there's a gnome subfolder. All right, so once again, gconf tool dash two space dash dash all ders uh, space slash desktop slash gnome. And it looks like there are some URL handlers in here. Okay, URL handlers. I'm adding that to the end of the thing. And then there's a bunch of, so slash desktop slash gnome slash URL handlers slash HTTPS or Chrome or TG or FTP or HTTP. So you, you kind of get the idea that, that you're, you're looking around through this structure of data, which, which is structured as if though there were, there were, um, file paths. Now in these, in these quote unquote directories, there, there, there may be, let's, 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 again, just using an analogy here, there may be some files. Now, these aren't really files, they're actually keys, and the keys have values, but I mean, isn't that kind of what a file is? It's kind of an inode key with a bunch of data inside of it. So, I mean, arguably. So, gconf tool dash two dash dash not alders, we're going to do something different. We're going to do recursive 
dash list, I think is what it is. Recursive dash list. Yeah. Uh, space slash desktop slash GNOME. Let's just keep it, keep it really kind of simple. I guess we could even do desktop. Maybe is that a thing? Oh, that is. Okay. So gconf tool dash two space dash dash recursive dash list space slash desktop. This shows you that, hey, there's this subdirectory called GNOME and within that directory, there are other directories which we've already seen but there's we're going to see the sort of the contents of this stuff now so slash desktop slash gnome slash url dash handlers yeah i remember seeing that in that is a um and uh, a, a further subdirectory let's call it um or i guess at this point we might call it no let's call it that desktop gnome url handlers https command equals Ah, that sounds like a key equals a value. So the command equals slash opt slash Firefox slash Firefox bin percent s. Enabled equals true. So that's yet another key uh, value key pair, uh, key value pair. Needs underscore terminal equals false. Another terminal, uh, another um, key value pair. Uh, and then under that, there's the desktop GNOME URL handlers, the HTTP. Well, they're, they're all the same, actually. Yeah, they're they're pretty much basically all the same. Um, but anyway. Well, here's actually an interesting one. Gnome handler URL handle Chrome command equals opt Firefox Firefox bin percent s. I I don't know where these come from, but there there you go. These are the URL handlers that apparently gconf um, has assigned to a bunch of Firefox commands that I created uh, because I install Firefox myself into opt and I run it uh, with a custom made little desktop file and I do that because Firefox is forever alerting me that I need to update it and to try to update it um, manually well I do I just mean I, yeah I have a script that, that just gets rid of the opt directory and, and downloads the latest build from Firefox puts it into opt and, and then I continue on my way and probably the first time that I um, you know placed the application dot desktop file in my dot local share applications directory gconf probably integrated it into its little system there you go so and you can continue i mean you get the idea now there are lots of different commands or, or rather options there's dash dash all dash entries for instance to see all the keys in in uh, a specific directory uh, yeah a directory um there's dash dash uh, dump that that'll give you a sort of a data dump dash dash get like I said you can get the values or you know you can also dash dash set to set a value so if you know that for instance um yeah that that a gconf tool dash two dash dash set quote slash desktop slash gnome slash foo should have a uh, a value of something then you can do dash dash type uh, and let's say it's a string so you would type in string, and then the string that you want to set it to. So, quote, bar, close quote. And now you would have in your desktop GNOME uh, sort of folder, as it were. Again, this is all stuff in a database, so it's not really a file and a file path. Uh, you would have an entry called foo, and the value for foo would be a string of letters, which is called bar, B-A-R. Um, yeah, and there, there's a bunch of stuff that you can do like that. I, I found some really useful um, documentation uh, on on the different options that you could use uh, just within the package itself. There, that's in the documentation for this for this package. It, I don't know that it 
that it's everything, but it's it's a bunch of stuff. All right, so that was that was gconf uh, or yeah gconf tool dash two. Let's see what else we've got here in the package listing. I'm trying to get back to there it is. Okay, here we go. Nope, that's the Slack build that I was looking at earlier. All right, I'll just most var log packages slash gconf with a capital G and a capital C. Oh yeah. It was gconf merge tree. Merge tree, of course, it helps you merge different configuration files together. G settings data convert helps you convert data from um, one gconf configuration to another. You know, it's used for uh, migration. Like uh, if if you've written an application for GNOME. 3.9 and then GNOME 40 comes out. Yeah, they did a weird thing with their numbering. Uh, then, then you can you you can use this tool to to convert the data. And then there's G settings data convert and G settings schema convert. There's a difference between G conf and G settings. G settings are te- plain text plain text files. G conf, as I've said is a database. So sometimes you need to convert from one to the other. Maybe someone wrote a simple application that they thought, oh, this is fine. I can just do, I can just do this as a settings file. Or maybe that's just a legacy thing. I don't know. I couldn't find exactly what the intended use case for this was, uh, or, or the, the reason for its existence. Um, but you can, um, you can convert, you know, you can take your data from a G settings, uh, or rather G conf and, and dump it out to a G settings or G a schema, uh, for G settings, you can convert to G conf and so on. So there's, there's a bunch of conversion things. They exist. I, I didn't try them. Uh, frankly, I just, I kind of got bored of the, of, of the whole concept, but that's, that's G conf. That's everything. Next up is lib raw. LibRaw is a library for reading raw files from digital photo cameras. These are formats like CR2, NEF, um, DNG, DCR, and so on. Virtually all raw formats are supported by LibRaw. It's just something that it does. It pays special attention to correct retrieval of data required for subsequent raw conversion. The library is intended for embedding in raw converters, data analyzers and other programs using raw files as the initial data. So here's the thing about raw. Raw just, it it means that a, that some device has recorded a lot of information about, well, let's just talk in visuals. So it, it, it record, it has recorded a lot of information from its little light sensors and it has written that information to some media. That's a raw format. Now what that raw format looks like once you sort of look at the actual data can change, which is why you have a raw format labeled CR2 or CRW or NEF or DNG or or whatever else there is out there. And there are a lot of them out there. And that's just, you know, someone might put the, the size of the sensor in one place while someone else puts um the the value of uh the 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 luma levels of of a specific region of of the thing that was being photographed uh instead so you you have you have a lot of potential data within a raw file and a raw file really isn't meant it isn't targeting one thing that's sort of like the quote-unquote problem with raw and 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 when i say quote-unquote problem i'm saying that because it's it is also the feature of raw it is not assuming anything 
about the way that you are going to look at that data, which is a powerful thing, because that way it can give you all the data, all the data that it has available to it, the sensor width, the sensor height, the left border, the top border, bottom border, the, the like I say, the different levels of, of Luma for, for different pixels and so on. You, you've got all of that information. Now, if the application that you look at that data in doesn't, I don't know, process, um, maybe it ignores the, 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 the bounds. I don't know that it could do that actually, but maybe it ignores the, I don't know, the, the value of foo. It doesn't know what to do with that. It just, it's not, it's not that fancy of an application. It doesn't know what foo is in photographs. I mean, neither do I because I'm making it up, but it just doesn't, it doesn't need that information. Well, that's fine. When you import it, it will drop you know, or it will, it will do whatever it needs to do with foo, probably, uh, assuming your application was written, you know, to support that format of raw. It'll, it'll, it'll get the values that it can work with. It will convert them to whatever color space and viewport that makes sense for you and cache the rest of the data so that you can manipulate it probably. And eventually, once you're happy with what you're seeing on your screen, you'll export it as something that is targeted to a specific, uh, I say device, but really I mean a specific library. So for instance, you might get a good picture that you're happy with and you might think to yourself, okay, I'm done. I'm going to now export it as a TIFF image. No compression. I'm, I, I'm keeping as much of the data as I possibly can. It's going to be a huge file, but I really like this photograph and I'm going to blow it up to be really big. So that's what I want TIFF. Or you may think, well, I also want a little smaller copy that I'll just post online for people to download. Uh, and I'll do that as a WebP image. Well, now you've got a TIFF and a WebP image, and those are specifically targeted towards a library. If you send that WebP image to someone running some arcane operating system that's lagging behind in support for modern uh, graphic formats, like, I don't know, Mac OS or something, then, or I think Safari specifically, for, for a very long time, it might have might have finally caught up. Couldn't couldn't look at WebP, um, and so they you know you send that picture of that WebP to someone who doesn't have libwebp installed or whatever it is, uh, then they won't be able to open that that image file. That's that's just that that won't work. Uh, if you send someone a TIFF file and they don't have libtiff installed, then then that won't open. If you send someone a raw file but they have libraw installed, then they'll be able to see the raw photo. Now, in in reality, of course, we're all kind of expected to have libraw, libtiff, libwebp, or whatever it is, libjpeg, you know, all the standard ones, you kind of have the expectation, well, I'll have that installed. The advantage of libraw is that you can send all kinds of raw files to your computer from, from your phone or from your camera, your fancy camera, or your less fancy camera, whatever. You got raw files, you can send it to your computer, it will know how to decode all of that information into something that you can see, manipulate, and export into common things, into common formats that are useful, that are generally, um, generally useful, which which is good. So that's what Libraw does. Go to libraw.org for more information. Um, obviously, it doesn't do any of us any good for me to, like, I don't know, talk about, like, the the functions that are available to that library or something like that. All right, let's talk about um, 
M2 Crypto. That's a crypto uh, cryptography toolkit for Python. M2 Crypto is a crypto and SSL library for Python. It includes RSA, DSA, DH, Diffie-Hillman, I guess, HMAX, Message Digest, Symmetric Ciphers like AES, SSL, HTTPS, and so on. Lots, lots of, lots of encryption um, library. Uh, um, algorithms, I guess. So this is important because if you want a Python application to talk to a server, for instance, that is communicating over SSL, then probably you want Python to just kind of magically know how to interpret that, the the signals that it's receiving back. And I think in a way that really succinctly kind of explains the use of a library. I used to kind of get confused sometimes when I was programming especially with Python, you, you sometimes get confused about, well, I know how to do such and such with a command on on the Linux terminal, and now I'm trying to write this Python application, and one of the things it needs to do is the same. It needs to do such and such. It needs to do whatever. I know how to do it with a command manually. I want to be able to write a script in Python to do the thing. And then you have to stop and you think, well, wait a minute, why am I using Python? Why don't I, if I know how to do it in a terminal, why don't I just, I'll just script it in bash. Well, okay, that works for a while. You can just divorce yourself of anything but bash, which I mean, I try to do anyway, because I I do feel that bash is one of the more sort of accessible in terms of like uh, broad reach languages. I mean, like people who learn Linux in the first place are kind of naturally learning bits and pieces of bash and so bash scripting is just kind of like that but more whereas python is just a complete change right you just complete total overhaul completely different skill so i mean any programming language is you know completely different than bash i'm just in this context i'm I'm talking about python so you have you know eventually you might think well okay i've been able to do you know to progress this far with bash but now i really need to use python or or whatever uh, because of some reason maybe i'm interfacing with some other application maybe i want a gui on my application i don't feel good about any of like little you know little bash options like uh uh, in curses and stuff so or or you know zenity or whatever so you you think okay I, I really have to switch over to python now and but how do you do the thing that you knew how to do in a terminal and i think i mean python java uh, uh c plus plus like it doesn't matter what it is it just at some point you're going to need to know how to do stuff that you used to know how to do somewhere else and there's equivalence there for for gui processes too you know you, you knew how to rotate an image in GIMP, how do you do it in Python or Java or whatever? So let's say, let's go back to the Python example. Python, there are, there, there's a thing in Python where you can essentially drop out of Python, you launch a shell and you can run commands in, in Python. And it's kind of a dangerous thing. It's one of those sort of cop-out things where you, if you learn about it, you're, you're tempted very frequently to use it a lot more than probably you should. So there's that too. And, and that gets confusing because now you do know how to do a thing in Python by not doing it in Python. Eventually you get to the level though where you realize, okay, I have to use this programming language. I, I it, It's got to, the, the application has to be written in that language because I can't count on the system that it's running on to have anything specific, any of the tools that I, I want to have, I can't count on those being there on the system. But if, I, if I'm if i writing everything 
natively in the language, then as long as the system it's running on has the language installed, it'll be good to go. And so you start writing stuff just in the programming language of your choice. In this example, Python. Suddenly, you, you for this application, you want you need to get some information from a server. There are some easy ways to do that, but what if at some point you realize that the server you're talking to is using some kind of encryption scheme so that you can't just grab information from the server. You have to grab it in a specific format. Well, the M2 crypto library allows you to tell Python, you'll import that library into Python, and now Python inherits a bunch of new capabilities. And it can do all kinds of things. It can now talk in all these different kinds of protocols or languages or ciphers, really. And so when it gets what looks like garbage to you, when you got it with just a normal uh, URL, uh, what is it, URL lib or HTTP lib or whatever, um, what is it, URL git, something like that, uh, whatever Python uses these days, you, you grab it, uh, with that thing, and it looks like garbage. Put that output through your M2 crypto library, to, like some function in that, all of a sudden, it actually makes sense. Now, you could write that yourself, right? If you go look up the, for instance, SSL uh, specifications, then you could figure out what the cipher is and how to, how to decode it and what kind of keys you need and all these other things. But with M2 Crypto, you import it, you use it, and you're done. And that's the strength of a library. You don't have to invent something because someone has already invented it, they've published it, they've released it as a library, or Python often calls it a module. Either way, it exists. That code is there. In this case, it's on gitlab.com slash m2crypto. In other library cases, it's it's somewhere else. Um, and it makes it really easy. You, you just, you get to do, you get to do all kinds of programming tricks without ever having to know how to, how, how the trick was done. I've, I've benefited from that sort of thing, well, too many times to count. I mean, some of us programmers pretty much just ride on libraries. I mean, it's, it's really, it, you, you just learn how to string a bunch of libraries together and you've got workable programs sometimes. So it's, it's pretty powerful stuff. I highly suggest that you get familiar with a good library or two if you're going to start programming because that'll just change change your abilities instantly you just you suddenly become like a you know a competent something like whatever you're working on you you can all of a sudden um you, you can you can talk to servers or manipulate um images and, and lots of other things so yeah, take a look at the libraries uh, provided for your programming language of choice, and you'll, you'll be surprised. Okay, next note, we need to go have coffee. That's what we need to do. Let's go get coffee. with coffee. Hopefully you've gotten yourself a cup of coffee as well. I am trying a different coffee today. It is a local roast of some some coffee beans. I, I got I got it because um because I was in uh Dunedin, a city called Dunedin, and 
uh, where, where I go kind of just to, for fun, you know, so it's a, it's a cool city, not too far away from me. I go there because there's a good gaming store there. Uh, so I was there for a while, a couple of days, and I thought, well, I'm going to need coffee while I'm here. And so I bought this bag of, of coffee for, for the, uh, the Airbnb where I was staying. And wouldn't you know, I was never at the, the, at the hotel or the Airbnb long enough, really, to take advantage of, of any of the coffee that I'd purchased. Because it just, I just had, there was so much to do in Dunedin. I had such a, 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 a schedule that I ended up not using any of the coffee that I'd gotten. So, brought it back, and I am enjoying it now. It's quite good. It's a, a, a really fine, um, grind, so I'm using it on my desktop, and on my desktop, on my desktop coffee maker. No, on my stovetop coffee, well, all of my coffee makers are, well, most of my coffee makers are stovetop. The little espresso one. Okay, so, uh, let's see, this is from Jim, and he says, uh, this is, the, the title is The Good and Bad of MDNS. So this is about the ZeroConf stuff that I was, I was talking about, what, two episodes ago? Hi, Klaatu. I find MDNS on our home network very useful. It makes it much, uh, it, it, it makes it much, uh, it, it makes setting up a small single board computer's much easier. There you go. Um, I also can usually connect to our wireless printer more quickly using its dot local address than waiting for our network's DHCP server to assign it an IP address. That said, MDNS can greatly reduce performance on large wireless networks. On a episode of the Heavy Networking podcast earlier this month, uh, episode number 673 available at uh, packetpushers.net, and I'll put the, um, the link in the show notes, they discuss a test performed by the guest, a network engineer at Dartmouth College. Normally, Dartmouth's network doesn't allow MDNS traffic, but for one hour, he removed the restriction on just the College of Engineering's network, then took uh, packet captures and measured the effect on the network. Because the network has so many access points, over 400, all of which were broadcasting the MDNS frames of their wireless clients, the College's network traffic slowed to a crawl. Some 75% of the packets were MDNS traffic. It was effectively an internal DNS attack. I found the episode fascinating. I encourage you to listen to it if you have the time. So this is Klaatu again. Um, amazing. Amazing, amazing, amazing. Uh, first of all, it's, it's, to back up, it is cool that it's useful on a home network. That does seem like it could be useful. And I guess the, the, the idea of having this thing active by default on a bunch of personal computers and then just turning it off at the access points kind of makes some sense. I think this kind of confirms exactly what I thought about MDNS. It's, it's, it's a noisy protocol. We, we all know this. If you know anything about ZeroConf or Avahi or, or Bonjour or MDNS or whatever we're calling it, you know anything about it, you know that it's a noisy protocol. It has to be, right? It's constantly announcing its presence on your network all the time to everything that will listen. It's, it's telling it where, you know, it's, it's, it's announcing its presence. It's giving its, its identity. It's, it's a noisy protocol. On a small network, that probably doesn't matter. You can do that. You can afford to do that. And I think in modern computing, sometimes that's what we do. We do stuff because we can afford it, because it's, it is relatively cheap based on the resources available to us. It is, it's weird how that happens, but I, I can think of a couple of examples where that has happened, you know, where, where hardware has, 
started out as pretty cutting edge and then and then and then i guess the software surpasses it and then the hardware is just kind of it's still there and it's still useful but it's 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 easier to use it's cheaper to use now because it's it's not like the software it wasn't it's not it's not bearing the the brunt i guess of 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 everything of, of all these processes so the software can just kind of offload stuff to the hardware or or the software has has cut out a bunch of uh excess th- things and so it can it can do different calculations uh instead of the other ones or whatever i just feel like that that happens sometimes that we we realize okay well now it's really easy to do this thing whereas before it used to not be easy i mean a ram disk is a really quick and simple example i use ram disk all the time on my computer i have it auto mounting at the uh, at boot i use it as my temporary directory for my audacity sessions when i'm recording this podcast for instance i use it for temporary storage for for files that i i'm downloading and working on at work and things like that. So it's, I would have never been able to do that before, but now that I have, I don't know, what do I have, 24, 32 gigs of RAM in my computer or something? I can't even get all of my RAM being used, so I'm just literally using some of it as temporary instant storage, and it's quite nice. It's it's quote-unquote cheap to do that now, and I think it's sometimes cheap on a network, on a small manageable network, to 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 just broadcast your MDNS all of the time. And if it saves you five minutes and, and keeps you from having to fiddle around with um, setting up uh, your IP address preferences or maybe you don't, you're not in an environment where that would make sense for you to set up because really all the devices are frequently changing, then, then MDNS, maybe that does just make a lot of sense. But it is absolutely fascinating to me the effect that it has on a a larger network. I'm really, really surprised by by that. That that is fascinating to me. That it was that drastic. I'm not surprised. It's just really cool that someone thought, let's just prove this thing that we're we we all kind of know, but maybe we don't think about all that time. I mean, that's an important thing to be aware of, though. Too MDNS. I mean, if you ever inherit a a, a, a sizable network. I keep that in mind that maybe that MDNS traffic or ZeroConf or Bonjour or whatever you're calling it, uh, maybe that's a thing that you should just drop. That shouldn't be something that gets propagated. Um, because it not only does it make for a heavy traffic network, it, it, it really does get cluttered on, on users' computers. I and mean, we've all been to places where you open up your, uh, your networking, you know, location type of, you know, your file manager or whatever to, to, to a network network location and and you see all of these devices listed in your sidebar or or in a folder you know virtual folders or whatever um where it's like you know uh, bob's hp and andrew's macbook and and sophie's uh lenovo you know and you've got all these different people um or all these different devices sort of lingering you know in your file manager and you you don't want them there. You don't need to know about them. You don't need to know what brand computer Bob has or anybody else. And yet, there they are. Um, so blocking that is sometimes just a convenience all around, I think. But you do have to think as the admin, if you're the admin, you have to think to, to block it because otherwise it'll just it'll just be there. Good, good or bad, it'll just do it. All right, let's talk about Mako templates for Python. Mako, M-A-K-O. It's a template library written in Python. And if you've ever used like uh, Jinja 2 or uh, what's the other one? I don't think it is for Python though. It's it's for like 
Is it for Ruby or something? There's another one. There are lots of template libraries out there. Um, and 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 they what what they are is they're sort of hybrid markup languages that also know about a programming language. I kind of use this in my own bash script that I use to post this podcast. Not not Mako, sorry. Just this concept. I have a bunch of HTML stuff, or XML rather, sorry, and then a line in there that's clearly delimited that is to be replaced. And then when I run my bash script, it downloads the thing, it finds that line, deletes the line, and and puts, puts where it was, it places the text for this episode, the description, the, the episode number, uh, and so on. All, all the XML data, all the RSS and Atom feed data. And this, that's the same idea, sort of. So, for instance, maybe you're, um, I don't know, auto-generating a, an HTML table. You could, you can write that out yourself in Python. Like, you could do a bunch of print statements that are then generating the, the HTML, and then you could take that html and put it somewhere and show it to the user or whatever but what you really want is for there to be a template library a a template file and then a library that knows to look at that template file and swap out really quick all the computations that you wanted it to do and 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 retain all the markup so for instance you might have like um let's say a table that you're designing so you could do an html table not a desk um so you know you could do table tag and then percent sign to sort of break out of the template and you could just write your python for row in rows um oh, that's not python what is that 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 must be mako actually dollar sign curly uh brace make row parentheses row close parentheses close uh, bracket end four and what that would do and then end table so what what you would be doing there in theory is that you'd be you're telling mako to okay well stop you know put your do make a table and now to populate it stop and and take every each row in this in this um in this variable called rows and for each each time you do this, call it a row, and then run this uh, this function called make row, and then you end the four, so it does that like ten times or however many rows there are, and then it puts and then it closes the table tag. And you could do that for whatever; it doesn't have to be tables. Obviously, it can be a bunch of different things, um, and it's just it's a library that understands a syntax designed to create documents. You import it into to Python with just the usual sort of from mako.template, for instance, import template. That's the, the usual Python sort of incantation. Import something. Or if you don't want to import the whole thing, then you say from something, import this this part of it. Uh, and there's lots of different things that you can, that, that it's, I mean, it's designed, again, for documents. It, it's creating, like, HTML pages. That's, that's what the template is for. Not that you can't have templates for other things, but that's what this is primarily aimed at, I think. And in fact, it, it, Mako itself compares itself and, and says that it is pretty similar to Jinja, too. I'm not sure what its selling point is. Like, is it just yet another Jinja 2? Or or is there something unique about it? I'm not really sure. I've never used it. I've used Jinja 2 relatively heavily in previous previous jobs. Okay, finally, or finally for this episode, certainly not for the L directory in Slackware, QCentilla, I'm assuming that's how you say it. Uh, it is a port of the Centilla uh, C++ library, which is, if you'll recall, there was a... Um, library within the KDE frameworks called 
KDE syntax highlighting or something like that, or maybe it was Kate syntax highlighting. I think, yeah, it must have been Kate syntax highlighting or something like that. And it provided all these options for editors, for text editors, where it would, it would pick up what language you're using and it would highlight certain words based on whether they were a keyword or just a variable name. They would, um, I don't know, close, um, close quotes for you and stuff like that. That's basically what Q Scintilla does. Um, although it's kind of geared towards like uh, error finding, like, you know, for debuggers, essentially, like highlighting errors and um, putting a little marker in the in the margin so you can see it quickly, kind of scanning through just one, one, one vertical axis of your editor and so on. So this is something that exists, as I say, for C++ as Scintilla. This is the Q Scintilla library because it's specific to Qt, or, or rather, it's written for Qt. Um, that means that if you are in, if you're doing an IDE or an IDE-like thing with the Qt framework, then you could use Q Scintilla to get those features sort of automatically within your text editor. I have never used it. I've written a text editor for fun in with, with the cute framework it's it's you know pretty should i say shockingly easy or surprisingly i think it's surprisingly easy because you still i mean it still work but um it's pretty easy because there's so many things already there this is one of those things like you could just drop this in and suddenly if people start writing code in your text editor they'll get all kinds of cool features because you used this library the cool thing about this package too is that it, it, it includes the c++ libraries uh, or rather header files, the library itself, and the Python, like the cute Python uh, components required. So if you're if you're writing a text editor with cute Python, which is even easier, I still won't say shockingly, but very very easy. Um, then then you could use this Q Scintilla and and just get all kinds of syntax highlighting and indicators and little warning symbols and all kinds of things in in the text editor. And people would think that you'd worked really really hard to to get all that stuff in your IDE or your text editor and and really you haven't you have simply imported Qcintilla or something like that. Now I have skipped over PyQt5 because I think that probably deserves an episode all its own uh, and I, I don't want to just leave it tagged on here at the end. So I'm going to do PyQt5 next time and as for this time, time is up. Thank you very much for listening. I'll talk to you next week. Thanks for listening. My name's Klaatu. You can reach me anytime over email with feedback or comments, tips, or just to say hi. My email address is klaatu at slackermedia.info. You can also reach me on the Mastodon network, not klaatu, at mastodon.xyz. The show's intro and outro music is by Fat Chance Lester. You can find their music on bandcamp.com or on gnuworldorder.info in the archive you'll find a music directory containing the album from which this music has been extracted until next time thanks for listening and keep the source open
No, no, there's no need to thank me. 